Let us pray. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. O oh God, You are worthy of all praise and adoration. We bless Your name, for marvelous are Your works among all the peoples. You are good and gracious. You fill us with joy and hope and peace in believing. Give us Your gifts, O oh God, this day, that we may see Your splendor and majesty, that we may know Your love and Your mercy, for You alone are God. You rule forever. You are in the heavens as, and You do as You please. And now You invite us into Your heavenly sanctuary through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to You, O Heavenly Father, our great God, with Your eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit, to You be all honor, majesty, and adoration. Amen. Even as the Word was made flesh and came and dwelt among us, so the Word of the Gospel comes among us today. This is from Luke's Gospel, the first chapter, beginning in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There ends our reading. This is the Gospel of Christ. Praise be to Christ. And I will read again from Luke's Gospel, the first chapter, picking up in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has regarded the low estate of His maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is on those who fear Him from generation to generation. 
He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her house. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our kinsman and our redeemer. Amen. In the beginning was the song. God is a singer. He's always been a singer. And God sung the world into existence. Yes, I know Genesis 1 says God spoke and the world was created. But there is reason to think that His speech there in Genesis 1 was sung. The words He speaks in Genesis 1 have a a rhythm and a cadence and a repetition to them that really sound more like song lyrics than ordinary speech. I would suggest everything God says in Genesis 1 was sung. Job 38 tells us that the angels sang together at the creation. And so we might ask, who taught them this song? Who was leading them in song? Of course, it must be God Himself teaching them to sing as He sings the world into existence. C.S. Lewis certainly believed this in his Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, he has Aslan uh, sing Narnia into existence. Aslan sings the world of Narnia into being. J.R.R. Tolkien does the same thing with the creation of Middle-earth and the Cimmerillion. If God is a singer, and He most certainly is, then humans made in His image must be singers as well. And indeed, we see that in the early chapters of Scripture. Adam sings over his bride as soon as God creates her, as soon as God creates the woman and gives her to Adam to be his wife. He sings over her. We have the first love song, the first love song in Genesis chapter 2 that Adam sings over his wife. Early in history, very early, in fact, in Genesis chapter 4, men create the first musical instrument. Jubal becomes the uh, father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. And so what do we see in Scripture? Creation is born in song. It is filled with song. God sings and man, His image bearer, sings as well. God is a singer and He made us to be singers also. Indeed, we could say God and man were made to harmonize together. But we know in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebelled against God's song. Adam and Eve sinned. They began to sing off-key, as it were. They began writing their own discordant song instead of singing off of God's sheet music. They try to go solo. They try to sing solo with disastrous results. And so now what? Well, there must be a new song. And did you see this throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, especially in the Psalter, where the psalmist of Israel is continually longing for a new song, crying out for God to give a new song. And that's because a new song means a new creation. 
It means creation redeemed and restored and retuned. So once again, we sing in key with God Himself. So creation will harmonize with its Creator once again. That's the new song the psalmist is longing for. The new creation, like the old, will be born in song and filled with song. It will be celebrated in song. And it's so interesting when we turn to Luke's Gospel. What do we find in the opening chapters of his Gospel? Luke is telling the story of the new creation. And he does so with song. He's telling us the story of God's new creation. And He's showing us this new creation comes in with song. His story of the birth of the new creation is punctuated with music. A new creation and new songs go together. It's like Luke has written a Christmas musical as narrative and song alternate back and forth. Or you can think of what Luke is doing this way. You know how it is when your favorite musical artist releases a new album and you're so excited to hear that new music, those new songs. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in Luke chapters 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit is releasing a new album, a soundtrack to accompany the birth of Jesus, the beginning of this new creation. There are, in fact, four songs Uh, here in Luke chapters 1 and 2. They're known as Mary's Magnificat, Zechariah's Benedictus, uh, the Angel's Gloria, and Simeon's Nunc Dimittis. Those are the Latin names. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look at these new songs to go with this new thing God does in sending His Son into the world. So today we want to look at Mary's song, Mary's Magnificent Magnificat. A song that celebrates truly the inbreaking of God's new creation. Now we need to understand the Magnificat of Mary in its context. Uh, it is accompanied by an event known as the Annunciation. That's really a response to the Annunciation. The Annunciation is the angel Gabriel arriving to announce to Mary the birth of God's promised Messiah. If we really want to understand Mary's song, we need the backstory. We need the context. And as you look at this context here with me, I want you to especially notice all the new creation themes that emerge in the story. Verse 26, Gabriel comes to Mary. He comes to her in the sixth month. Of course, we know Adam was created on the sixth day of the creation week. The new Adam will be announced in the sixth month. Before this chapter, Gabriel was, before this chapter in Luke's Gospel, Gabriel was last seen several centuries earlier in the book of Daniel. He appeared to Daniel to reveal to the prophet Daniel the timetable for the coming Messiah. And so it's fitting that he would return to say the time is now, the time is fulfilled. Now it's beginning to happen. The things that I delivered to Daniel are now going into effect. We find that Mary is a virgin. She is betrothed to marry Joseph. She's engaged. Joseph is a descendant of King David, so she's going to be marrying into a royal family. The angel greets her and says, Rejoice, highly favored one, for the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Eve is the blessed woman. Now, Mary receives this greeting from the angel and she is troubled. She is afraid by what she hears. 
Uh, people are always afraid. Whenever you have an angelic visitation in Scripture, it seems, whenever angels visit, people are always afraid. Angels are terrifying. They come straight from the presence of God, and they come to deliver a message from God Himself. And so Mary recognized this. I'm sure Abraham himself was a, was a fearsome-looking being, a, a, a warrior, angelic warrior. Mary is afraid. She's fearful. And so Gabriel says again, do not be afraid, for you have found favor or grace with God. Gabriel is saying to Mary, God has favored you. God is gracious and merciful to you. God has chosen you for a special role. And then he goes on to tell her what this means. How she will conceive a son named Jesus. He will be the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. And his kingdom will not end. Gabriel is telling Mary nothing less than this. She will be the mother of the Messiah. The mother of God in the flesh. The new Adam, the founder of a new humanity, will come forth from her womb. Mary will give birth to the Son of God. It's very interesting. A couple chapters later in Luke chapter 3, Luke gives his genealogy for Jesus, tracing the ancestry, the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam. He traces the ancestry of Jesus all the way back to Adam. But it's very interesting. Every man in that genealogy comes from another man. Every man is the son of another man, with two notable exceptions, Adam and Jesus. Adam in that genealogy in Luke chapter 3 is actually called the son of God because he's made by God. He had no human parents. Adam was at the very top of the family tree. He didn't, really, he didn't have a family tree preceding him. He was made by God, and so therefore he's rightly called the son of God. And then you've got Jesus, who, yes, is in the genealogy, but in a very extraordinary way, because we know from this, He is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin. And so there's a parallel set up between the first Adam and now Jesus as a new Adam, the last Adam. The first Adam clearly contained all humanity in Himself. All of us were in Him. He was the head of humanity. He was the fountain of the human race. Even Eve was in Adam in the very beginning since she was formed out of his side. And that means, of course, that when Adam fell into sin, all of humanity fell with him. When he rebelled against God, he took the human race down with him. Down into the depths of the curse and into death. The whole human race stopped singing God's beautiful song and started singing ugly, beautiful, I'm, I'm sorry, ugly, broken music when Adam sinned. And so now, Luke shows us that there must be a new Adam, a new head of humanity, one who will contain a new humanity in himself, who will bring in a new song. It's interesting, you know, Luke 3 is not the only genealogy in the Bible. The Bible's filled with genealogies. And they basically all go something like this. Adam begat Adam, who begat Adam, who begat another Adam, who begat yet another Adam. It's just flesh giving birth to flesh. Fallen humanity giving rise to fallen humanity. Fallen humanity coming from fallen humanity. 
But the way Luke tells this story about the birth of Jesus, we see here that Adam's line is being broken. A new family tree is being planted. A new Adam is entering the world. A new Son of God is entering into history. One born not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. And this man will be the author and founder of a new humanity, indeed a new creation. Indeed, He comes to be what humanity was supposed to be. To do what man was supposed to do. He comes to sing God's new song with perfect pitch and in key all the time. He's the new Adam. He is the last Adam. He is salvation. He is God incarnate. Gabriel is announcing all of this to Mary. Gabriel is announcing to Mary nothing less than the Gospel. This is the Gospel, the good news. That the Son of the Most High, the One who is like His Father, who has always known His Father in love and fellowship, will now come to us. The way has been prepared for Him to come. Mary has been told His arrival is imminent. It's nine months away and counting. And He will be born into the world. This is what Gabriel announces to Mary. But Mary has a question, a very legitimate question. Not a doubt here, but a question. very logical question. She says, how can this be? How can this be since I do not know a man? How can I have a son since I am a virgin? Sometimes people act like, oh, well, you know, in the ancient world they were so primitive and barbaric They didn't really know the birds and the bees, and so they could fall for things like the myth of a virgin birth. But no, Mary knows where babies come from. And so she knows there's something very odd and different, yes, miraculous about what she's being told. She hasn't had relations with a man, so how is she going to have a son? And the angel tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. And so therefore, the one who is born to you will be called the Son of God. In other words, the angel is saying God Himself will create this baby in your womb. Without the agency of a man, the Holy Spirit will do it. See again, Adam's line is broken. It must come to an end. A new humanity must be inaugurated. And so there's a new creation. This new creation will take place in her womb. She will carry the new Adam, this new creation in her womb. And I want you to see, too, how fully Trinitarian this is. Of course, Mary had never heard of the Trinity. That doctrinal formulation would come after the church had had more time, in fact, a few centuries, to reflect on all of these facts. But you cannot make sense out of what is being said here without the Trinity. You clearly have the Father who is God sending His Son who must also be God, who shares in the Father's Godness and Godhood. And the Father sending the Son into the world through the Holy Spirit who must also be God in order to make this happen. Father, Son, and Spirit. Just as they were all involved in the work of the first creation, so here they are all involved as one in the work of the new creation. Causing Mary as a virgin to conceive this incarnate one. The Son of God in human flesh. This is truly a miracle. 
A Trinitarian miracle. A miracle that is on par with the original creation itself. When God created, that was a miracle. It's unlike any other act we know or could ever know. God created the world out of nothing. And now God will create a child in the womb of the, of the virgin. The conception of this child in Mary's womb will be nothing less than a new creation. It is the incarnation of the Son of God by the Holy Spirit. And I think you see the new creation in all the details here. The Holy Spirit will overshadow her. That's reminiscent of the original creation account in Genesis 1 where the Holy Spirit overshadows the formless and empty creation hovering above the waters. So here the same Spirit overshadows the empty womb of Mary to fill it with the Son of God in human form. She will give birth to the God-man, the Son of God who was eternally begotten of the Father without a mother, now will enter into the world with a mother. So interesting to think about this, what's being said here. See, eternally, the Son of God was, was begotten by, of the Father without a mother, but now historically, the Son of God was born of a mother without a father. So interesting to see what's going on here. Christ has no earthly father. That is a reminder that He is from above. He is truly God. And yet He does have an earthly mother. That's a reminder He is from below. He's truly man. He's one of us. See, in this we see the true identity of Jesus Christ. Everything else the New Testament says about His identity as the God-man is really summarized here. It's all here in seed form. It'll be worked out more fully in the rest of the New Testament, but it's here. We see that Jesus must be fully God and fully man. It is the wonder of the incarnation, the eternal Word of God, the eternal Son of God becoming flesh. The one who is of the same nature as his father with regard to deity will now be of the same nature as his mother with regard to humanity. And so he is Son of God and Son of Man. The eternal Son of God who becomes the Son of Man in the fullness of time. His Father is the eternal God. And so Mary is now, we could truly say, the mother of God. We didn't read it, but that's actually how Elizabeth greets her, as the mother of my Lord. Elizabeth understands what's happening. The one that Mary will give birth to is God in human flesh. Again, the wonder of it all, we can't even fathom it. She will hold in her womb the one that the heavens cannot contain. Jesus is all the divine glory crammed into the flesh of a helpless baby that Mary will carry in her womb and then hold in her arms. This is the one to whom the virgin will give birth. The angel then gives Mary a sign. And the sign is actually another miraculous birth. This will be the birth of John, the forerunner, who will pave the way for Jesus, who will prepare the way, who will announce His coming and the coming of His kingdom. And so what is this sign that Mary is told about? Her older relative, Elizabeth, who has been barren all these years. In fact, she is known as the barren one. Elizabeth has conceived a son. This miraculous son had been announced by Gabriel. We also find this in Luke chapter 1, just as Gabriel announced the miraculous birth to Mary. 
And lest Mary be tempted to doubt here, the angel reminds Mary that with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. The God who created the world out of nothing can make the world new through this miraculous birth. He can make the barren woman conceive. He can make the virgin woman conceive. God is bringing these baby boys into the world to show, yes, this is a new creation. And then Mary gives her response. Mary gives her response to all of this. What does she do? She says, Behold, I am the maidservant of the Lord. She puts herself at the Lord's disposal. If this is what God wants to do with me, then so be it. She says, I'm yours, God. Have your way with me. She gives the right creaturely response. She says, let it be to me according to your word. I think her language here again, it, it echoes and reminds us of Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, God spoke and it was so. Mary says here, God has spoken, so let it be. Let it be as the Lord has said. Let it be according to the word of the Lord. Mary the virgin will give birth to the Son of God the beginning of a new creation and a new humanity. And I want you to notice here what this means. The, the emphasis on her virginity is not because the Scriptures give us a negative view of sex or something like that or a negative view of the body. Sometimes that's been the takeaway that people have had from this. That's not the case at all. Rather, it is so we will understand the identity of the Son born to her. That this is no ordinary man, and He could not enter the world in an ordinary way through ordinary generation. No, this child to be born is God's gift. The gift of God's love. The gift of God's Son. This child is God's new beginning. This child is God's own self and nature now incarnate in human flesh. For only in this way could the world be restored. Jesus is God's new song. This is God's new song entering the world. That's what's going on here. Now, we didn't read it, uh, the, the little section where Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. Perhaps she goes to visit Elizabeth to confirm the sign. Perhaps it is to hide her own scandalous pregnancy. And it was a scandal, no doubt. But whatever the case, when she goes to meet with Elizabeth, Elizabeth blesses her and Mary is encouraged by her visit with this older relative. Elizabeth tells Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is so important because, again, if you rewind all the way back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve fall into sin, where is the woman cursed? Where is the curse going to touch her most? It's in her womb. It's in childbirth. That's where the curse touches the woman. In pain she will give birth, God says to the woman. But now... Elizabeth says the fruit of Mary's womb will replace curse with blessing. It's so interesting that she calls Mary's son fruit. How did Adam and Eve go wrong in the first place? They stole fruit, forbidden fruit. They took fruit that was not theirs. Now it seems the fruit of the garden, the stolen fruit of the garden, is being replaced by the fruit of Mary's womb. This is how God is making things right. And then, to celebrate all of this, Mary composes a song. 
the song we know as the Magnificat from the first Latin word of the song. This song may be considered perhaps the last of the Jewish Psalms, or perhaps you could consider it the first Christian hymn. It's really both. Mary understands that this good news is so good and so glorious, it must be celebrated in song. A new work of God calls for a new song. You can't just say this. You can't just talk about it. You've got to sing it. You've got to sing about it. The gospel must be musical because it is nothing less than a new creation. And so here is the first of these new songs the psalmist was calling for. This is the the first release of the Holy Spirit's new album coming out with the birth of Jesus. Mary pours out her joy in song. She celebrates in song because she is so full of joy. In fact, I imagine her and Elizabeth together full of laughter. The way Sarah was full of laughter when she was told she would give birth. And then when she gives birth to Isaac, whose name means laughter, Sarah laughed with joy. It was just all too good to be true. She was told in her old age that she as a barren woman would have a son. It was just it was too good to be true. All she could do was laugh. And so it is for Mary and Elizabeth. They laugh together in joy. And this new song is the fruit of that. It's the fruit of Mary's joy. It's to celebrate the new creation God is inaugurating. And yet, this is interesting. As new as this song is, it's clearly rooted in the old. In fact, the only way Mary could have written this song is if she was steeped in Scripture. Because her song really is like a patchwork quilt of Old Testament allusions and echoes, uh, phrases and, and little snippets drawn out of different passages in the Old Testament, now sewn together in a beautiful new pattern. This beautiful patchwork quilt that Mary has created out of allusions and echoes and fragments from the Old Testament. In fact, it's very much like Hannah's song. Hannah was another barren woman we read about in 1 Samuel. And when the Lord told her that He would open her womb and give her a son, what did she do? She composed a song. Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. And that's what you have here. Mary is another Hannah. And she's written another song, very much like Hannah's song. But it goes beyond Hannah's song into new territory. It builds on Hannah's song and goes in a new direction. Hannah's name means favored one. And we've already seen how Mary is addressed as the favored one. Mary is a new Hannah. And she's doing a remake of Hannah's song, a transformation of Hannah's song into a new song. So how does this song go? Well, Mary says, she begins, My soul magnifies the Lord. To magnify means to enlarge or expand, and that's what's happening here. It's not that she's making God bigger, but her view of God, her, her, her vision of who God is and what God is doing is being enlarged and expanded. Her sense of what God is up to is being magnified. And she wants others to share in this magnified view of God and His purposes. Mary basically says, wow, God is a lot bigger than I thought. I never would have envisioned this. This is not the way I thought it was going to go. My view of who God is is magnified. My soul magnifies the Lord. 
She says, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. There it is, joy. And why is she joyous? Because now she knows salvation is arriving. Rescue from sin and death is on the way. It's like if you were trapped in a building that was burning and then you were told help is on the way, you would rejoice. Because you know that while your situation is dire, rescue is coming. And that's what Mary is saying here. She's rejoicing because God's rescuer is coming. God, her Savior, is coming to her. She knows she's a sinner. She knows she's in need of salvation. She sees all the effects of of sin, curse, of the curse and of death in the world. But now she's beginning to see how God will accomplish salvation, how He will push back the curse and replace it with blessing. How He will overcome death and bring in new life. She goes on, she sings, for He has regarded the low estate of His maidservant. Mary is humble here. She doesn't boast in this role she's been given. Mary is astonished at the grace she has been shown. And this is what grace does. God's grace flows to the humble. God's grace runs downhill. So if you lower yourself, you're going to receive grace. And God's grace always evokes awe and wonder. Those who receive grace always ask, why? Why me? Why was I chosen? How can I become the recipient of such amazing grace? The one who receives the grace is always astonished and astounded and amazed by it. If grace is not amazing to you, you don't really know what grace is. If you don't ever say, why me? Why was I chosen? Why was I made to come and trust in Christ when others perish? You don't understand grace if those questions never occur to you. Mary knows she wasn't worthy of this gift or this role. It's all a gift. It's all grace. She doesn't brag about it. She's astounded by it. She sings, for henceforth all generations will call me blessed. This has certainly been misunderstood and twisted. Here's the thing. Mary should be neither adored nor ignored. Neither adored nor ignored. Mary is not given any supernatural power. She's not to be worshipped or to pray to. That's not what it means to bless her. But we should recognize her role. And indeed, her willingness to play this role, to be God's servant, to bear God's Son, which was no easy thing to do. She would have the stigma of a pregnancy out of wedlock. She's going to be told later by Simeon that a sword will pierce through her heart also, not just through her son, but through her as well. It's going to be a painful thing. We bless Mary by honoring her for what she did and, of course, by worshiping and adoring and praising and trusting her Son, Jesus Christ. Actually, when she's called blessed here, when she says all generations will call me blessed, this is actually an echo of what is said about Jael in Judges 4 and 5. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know it's not for the faint of heart. It's a pretty brutal book. Okay, if Judges was ever turned into a movie, it wouldn't be G, it wouldn't be PG. I don't even know if it would be PG-13. It's that kind of book. It is full of brutal stories. But one of them involves J.L., who is a very faithful woman and uh, a man who has been attacking and opposing Israel and waging war against Israel is on the run. His name is Sisera. And he comes to J.L.'s tent. And J.L. welcomes this man into her tent. She knows he's wicked. 
She knows he is a serpent figure, and she concocts a plan. She's going to deal the decisive blow that will bring God's people to victory. When Sisera lays down and goes to sleep in her tent, she takes a tent peg and she pounds it into his head, crushing his skull. Okay, Not really the stuff that makes it into children's story Bibles a lot, I know. But then this is, this is what's interesting. It's celebrated in song. The song of Deborah celebrates what Jael has done. So Deborah sings in her song in Judges 5. Again, it's a song of victory. She says, most blessed among women is Jael, for she has pounded Sisera. She has pierced his head. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not glorifying in violence. No, this is glorifying God's justice and God's victory over evil. It's really glorifying the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 where God says that the promised seed of the woman will come into the world to crush the serpent's head and to defeat the arch-murderer and arch-liar who tempted humanity and led us astray. Sisera was a serpent figure. Jael is a woman who knows that she's been called to crush the head of the serpent, and she does so. And so Jael is blessed among women. And now Mary is blessed among women. Why is she blessed? Well, not for who she is, but because of who she gives birth to. Because she is giving birth to the promised seed, the son who will crush the serpent's skull for good. When he goes to the cross and is crucified at a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. What is under the feet of Jesus as He is hanging on the cross? It's the skull. It's the skull of the serpent. He crushes the serpent in His death. And so what is Mary? She is a skull crusher herself. She is a new J.L. And she's singing here a new song of Deborah, rejoicing in the victory that is to come over Satan and over death. She goes on in her song to, to sing... For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She's celebrating all that God is doing in her life. But then it's interesting, in the next verse, in, in verse 50, the song shifts from what the Lord is doing to and for her personally to what he will do to and for all of Israel and indeed all of the world. And here we see Mary's real wisdom, I think. Her view of God's work, this is how it's magnified. It goes beyond just what God is doing for her to what God is doing for the nations. Her view of God's work is not self-focused. She can pan out and see the big picture. She can see that God is not only saving individual sinners, we might say. He's bringing in a kingdom that's going to restore and renew all of creation. That is God's purpose. It's not just to save a sinner here and a sinner there. It's to renew the whole of the cosmos. And so in verse 50, she says, His mercy not only rests on her, it is from generation to generation. Mary was a pretty good theologian, especially for someone so young. This is covenantal. God saves families, not just individuals. God is retuning creation to sing His song. And it's a song that will be passed on from one generation to the next. Parents teaching their children how to sing God's song, how to sing God's new songs. Mary saying this is going to happen. His mercy will be from generation to generation. And what will God do when this Messiah comes and brings in the kingdom? Verse 51, God scatters the proud. 
Scattering is the opposite, of course, of gathering. When God blesses His people, He gathers them to Himself. When God judges people, He scatters them. They're driven away into isolation and loneliness. Verse 52, He pulls down the mighty from their thrones. Now, Mary is sounding a lot more revolutionary. God's going to shake things up. There's going to be a new king, a new sheriff in town who's going to take charge and call the shots. Mary's own son will be the one who sits on the throne. Again, you see here, Mary's not concerned just with what God is doing in her life, but with what He is doing in the world. Her song is not just personal, it's political. It's corporate. It's it's cosmic in scope. And indeed, a lot of what she says here in her song sounds really like a preview of the Beatitudes that her son Jesus would teach in the Sermon on the Mount. I have no doubt that Jesus was taught the Magnificat by Mary, by His mother. As He sat on His mother's lap, I'm sure she taught Him this song. And actually, you can see how it becomes the basis of His Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Mary is saying her son is going to turn things upside down. The kingdom is coming. And the kingdom is going to turn the world upside down and inside out. He's going to exalt the lowly. He's going to fill the hungry with good things. The rich and the proud will be empty. He's going to help His servant Israel. Earlier in the song, Mary identified herself as God's servant who received His help. Now all of Israel is God's servant receiving His help. Again, you see how she moves from herself as an individual from the individual scope of what is happening to the corporate, the communal, even the cosmic. And then she concludes her song with a reminder that this has been God's plan all along. Yes, it's surprising in the way it's coming to fulfillment, but this is what God had promised to do. She says, He remembers mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His seed forever. She goes back to Abraham. You remember what God promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12? God said to Abraham, I will bless you. There's that word, blessing. And through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. Those families of the earth that have been scattered and divided against one another after the Tower of Babel that hate one another and that hate God. Those scattered families of the earth will be blessed and reunited and regathered in Abraham's seed, in Abraham's son. And so God promises to Abraham a family made up of all the families of the earth. God promises to Abraham descendants as numerous as the grains of sand below and as numerous as the stars of heaven above. God says to Abraham, your family will be a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth like the grains of sand below and like the stars above. A new world, a new creation will come through your seed. And now, Mary is singing that promise is being fulfilled. That's the theme of her song, that God is doing what He said. He's the righteous God, the faithful God who is fulfilling His Word. In her song, she truly has magnified the Lord. We see here the bigness of God's purposes, the magnitude of what God is doing. Mary sings of God's great reversal in which the prideful will be torn down and the humble will be raised up. That's going to be the pattern of the kingdom. Those who serve and sacrifice will be exalted and those who are selfish and self-absorbed and self-promoting will be debased. They will be brought low. 
Mary sees the implications of the incarnation. And she sees that, yes, there will be implications here for her personal life. But they go far beyond that. History is never going to be the same. Through the birth of this boy, the kingdom is being ushered in. Her son is going to change the world. Things are never going to look like they did before. History will be different because of this baby that's going to be born to her. And so we might ask, well, what does all this mean for us? What do we do with Mary's magnificent magnificat? Well, I think there's nothing better for us to do than to join with Mary in singing her new creation song. The new creation comes with song. The Gospel is a musical. The Gospel must be sung and celebrated in song. We celebrate with Mary when we sing the good news. And in doing so, we imitate Mary's example of humble faith. This is what Mary did. She said, here I am, God. I'm yours. Whatever you want, I'll do. My life is clay. You mold it however you want. You're the potter. I'm the clay. Shape me how you want. Mary trusted the Lord. She put herself completely in the Lord's hands and at His disposal. She gave her body to God, quite literally offering herself to God holistically. She said, not my will, but thy will be done. And so her own life reveals the pattern of the kingdom her son would establish through his death and through his resurrection. And our lives should reveal the pattern of the kingdom as well. Like Mary, we should offer ourselves to the One who has given Himself to us and for us. We should offer our bodies to service of God in His kingdom. Mary was a virgin who gave birth. And in a way, that's a model for us to understand. Every time someone is reborn, Jesus talks about that, being born from above or being born again. It is a virgin birth, so to speak. It is a miraculous act of God bringing you into His new creation family. And here's the thing. God the Son came to dwell in Mary in a special way for nine months. She housed in her body the incarnate Lord. The Shekinah glory of God was in her womb. She was like a new temple for those nine months, housing the very presence of God Himself in her body. But look at what the rest of the New Testament says. Now the Son of God dwells in each of us. We are all temples of the living God. The Shekinah glory of God is in each one of us, and not just for nine months, but permanently. He's taken up residence in each one of us making us into a house, a home in which He dwells. And so we should all learn the lessons of Mary's life and of Mary's Magnificat and of Mary's Son. The Son who fulfills her song. If you really want to live, you must die. If you really want to enter God's new creation, you must die to the old creation with its old ways under the influence of the liar and murderer Satan himself. You must join with Mary in singing of God's kingdom, in singing a prayer for the destruction of God's enemies and the exaltation of the lowly and the righteous. We look around at our world and we wonder, where are the effects of God's kingdom? We know that our world needs to be shaken up. We look at the world all around us and we know radical renewal is needed. And so what can we do? There's nothing more practical for us to do than to sing and pray our way through Mary's new creation song. 
It is a song of glory and of joy and of victory. It's a song that as we sing it, God acts, God answers, God works to bring His kingdom into the world more and more. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, with Mary, we do magnify You, for You are great, and Your purposes go beyond all reckoning. You do more than we can even ask or imagine. Father, we thank You for these new creation songs You have given to us, for bringing in a new world through Your Son, a world that is full of life and joy and forgiveness and holiness. May His kingdom grow and spread and advance. May we be the agents of His kingdom. May the pattern of our lives reflect the pattern of the kingdom, the pattern of the Gospel, that He who dies to self will live in glory. Father, may we do this by Your grace and for Your glory. May the songs we see here fill more and more our mouths and our hearts so that Your kingdom may come in us and through us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.